this was on my on my uh, counter. My mother-in-law tosses occasional articles from Useless Today to me, and I <laughs> and I, I look them over. This one is titled "What If the End Isn't Near." Now, I literally, this was on the counter as I was walking out the door. I grabbed it and thought, I, I have to share. He says, too many evangelical Christians welcome the biblical rapture with an unsettling eagerness. This fatalistic view serves neither fellow humans nor the planet. A new breed, are you getting mad yet? <laughs> A new breed of believers, thankfully, is taking another path toward Jesus. He writes, when Tyler Wig Stevenson, and first of all, having a dash last name like Wig Stevenson, I don't know what's up with that. Um, if you have a dash last name, I'm sorry. I'm just, just me. So anyway, when Tyler Wig Stevenson contemplates the times ahead, something this young Baptist preacher and Swarthmore College graduate tends to do a lot, he sees two futures. In one, the world has rid itself of nuclear weapons. In the other, the world has been destroyed by them. Because of language, quote, culture, and politics, the threat of nuclear weapons has been a difficult issue for evangelical Christians to engage, says Wig Stevenson founder and director of the Two Futures Project, a Christian campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. It's been my mission to carve out space for evangelicals to engage this issue on their own terms. Just my opinion, and I could be wrong about this, but until we abolish sin, abolishing nuclear weapons probably isn't the smartest thing. Probably isn't going to happen. Anyway, that's just me. And I'm not all for nuclear blowing things up either. But there is something about the balance of power that says, we're going to give up ours and you give up yours, and we're going to trust them to give up theirs, and it ain't going to happen as long as there's sin in the world. Anyway, that issue aside, and you can agree to disagree or, or agree to agree with me, but he ends up the article saying, committed young Christian action takers such as Wig Stevenson represent a hopeful new current in evangelical America. What a refreshing counterpoint to those who eye an imminent cosmic endgame, one replete with mass death and destruction, and seem to say, bring it on. If end times acceptance is losing credibility among the new generation of Jesus followers, and many signs say that it is, this is good news for us all, he writes. Taking Stevenson's two futures paradigm a step further, Christians might see a choice concerning their approach to the future as well. They can bet on a supernatural rescue for themselves and their kind and wait for the cataclysm, or they can dedicate themselves to compassionate action to alleviate suffering and injustice and to creating a better world. And I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, the whole issue of waiting for the rapture and the calling home of Jesus motivates me to want to make a difference in the world now. So, you know, I I read articles like this, and I'll tell you, here's the real issue. It doesn't really matter what my opinion is. And it doesn't matter what anyone's opinion is about the end times. What matters is what the Bible says. Period. Like it or not... I may not want to agree with this idea of the rapture. Well, if if you're in that place, I would say you probably ought to study it out and see what Scripture teaches. A belief in the rapture of the church, a belief in the coming wrath of God poured out in a tribulation, and a belief in the coming glorious appearing of Jesus after that to put down sin and rebellion. Gang, that doesn't make me look at the world and say, hey, they're going to hell in a handbasket anyway. I might as well sit back and enjoy myself and wait for the cataclysm. No! Any person with the mind of Christ knows what is coming by what Scripture says and is actively motivated to share Jesus with everyone they can before that happens. That's why the Lord tells us it's coming. 
It's why he, he, you know, I've said this before. Love is shown in him telling us this. It would be unloving for him to surprise us. But he told us ahead of time. Because he loves us so much, he wants us to know, look, this is what is going to happen. So be ready, be prepared, and live a life that does make a difference. Tonight we're back with David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we're going to look at another fascinating organization of the Psalms, which is what we've been doing over the last several weeks. And it's fascinated me. I mean, we might as well be in the book of Revelation for all the study we've been doing and what's been coming out of the Psalms. The obvious things. We're going to skip Psalm 51. We're going to take a look at that on Sunday. Uh, Probably the best sinner's prayer in the entire Bible. We'll look at that and consider it on Sunday. It's a standalone. But tonight we're going to cover Psalm 52, 53, 54, and 55. Why four more psalms? Because together there is a bundle here, a thematic combination of psalms. That in this combination we're going to see something, another arc as we've been looking at. We've been talking about arcs in the teaching. Often these arcs reveal prophecy in a bigger picture than an individual psalm would reveal. A broader context than what we see historically with each psalm. And we talked about a few weeks ago in Psalm 42, 43, and 44, the prophetic overtones of that remnant of Israel crying out for salvation during the tribulation. That the Bible talks about seven years that is prescribed for this planet that is coming, again, if you take the Bible literally, if you take God at His word. And we talked about how that culminated in the great wedding feast of the Messiah King and His Bride, Psalm 45. And it's just amazing, undeniable, how it is talking about the marriage, the wedding of God the King. And you can go back and look at that if you you hadn't heard the teaching. But we went from there last week into Psalm 46, 47, and 48, which portrayed the Millennial Kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ, talked about in Revelation 20. A thousand years listed six times in one chapter as a literal thousand years. Why six times? Because we're a little slow to learn. And people still don't get it, still don't believe it, still allegorize it. But that thousand year reign immediately followed by Judgment Day, and we saw that revealed powerfully in Psalm 49 and 50. Now all these psalms have an historic context. Were written by David, by some of the other guys, Hezekiah, in an historical way as to what was going on at the time, but there's also the stuff of prophecy throughout the Psalms, and we would be foolish to miss these things. And you might say, well, Rick, that just kind of sounds a little amazing. Well, it should. If the Word is living and active, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us it is, it should be amazing. The book should amaze us. But I do want to give you a warning before we go any further tonight. Whenever prophecy is addressed people can get a little wacky. People can get weirded out. And they can start imagining the Bible says all kinds of things. We don't want to do that. J. Vernon McGee writes, there's a fanaticism in the great department of eschatology, that is the doctrine of future things. Some things are being said that should not be said. And that's true. And so when we talk prophecy, when we talk end times, when we talk eschatology, we need to be careful not to go beyond the intentions of the Lord for His Word. Because it's His Word, not mine. And so even tonight as we go through this, I encourage you to test it. 
against what the rest of Scripture says. In fact, that's kind of the key. We stand on the solid and sure foundation of the entire Word of God. Okay, we don't just pull out one little snippet here or one little idea or one concept all by itself and base our entire doctrine on that. We look at what the whole Bible says about it. We look at supporting verses for it. That's, that's why you have all those verses up there. Verses that support what we're saying and bear it up and show throughout Scripture what we're talking about to be the truth. In Psalm 52, 53, 54, and 55... We're now going to look at four mascals. Remember, a mascal is a teaching psalm, which means it's instructive. There's, there's something in it that the psalmist, in writing it, wants us to get, wants us to understand, wants to teach us. And these four mascals will instruct us on yet another aspect of last day's prophecy. But let's pray and ask God's guidance before we get into this. Father, we open Your Word, Your Scriptures, Lord, and we ask You to show us truth. Father, we don't want to guess at this. We want to see it as it is. But Lord, even as I study, I'm seeing things that, uh, Father, just to me seem undeniable. I pray, Lord, if I'm wrong, that my brothers and sisters tonight will catch me on these things and point it out, or maybe not during the teaching, but afterward, come up and show me where I've missed it. But Lord, I, I believe Your Word to be true. I believe Your Word to be literal. I believe, Father, you're not playing games with us, but you've laid out the truth that we might see it and know it and be prepared. And, Father, be motivated by all the things that we learn to love more deeply and to share Christ more passionately and to have our lives truly stirred up to do your business in this world until Jesus comes. Oh, God, we're not sitting back waiting for a cataclysm. And our hearts break as we know your heart breaks that anybody would be lost. So Father, move us in these words tonight. Challenge us, encourage us, take us forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each of these four psalms, as we've seen before and as we'll see tonight, are historic. They're written by David in specific situations, but together they paint an amazing prophetic picture. Because in these psalms, we're going to see what Daniel refers to, or who Daniel refers to, as the prince who is to come. Or he calls him Little Horn. We're going to see who Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness, or the son of perdition. The person Jesus implicates, referring back to Daniel's abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, where he refers to Daniel 9. John simply calls this character the Antichrist, or the beast. And he emerges in a very clear picture from Psalm 52 to Psalm 55. Let's take a look at this. Beginning in Psalm 52. We see in the heading there, it's for the choir director, a masculine, a teaching psalm of David. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Historically, Doeg, we've seen the story, we read it back in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. He is the historical subject of this psalm. Young David, on the run from Saul, breathing out murderous threats against David, and so David comes to the priestly city of Nob. And there the high priest, Ahimelech, uh, greets him and is curious about why David is running without an escort, why he isn't with the king's men, what's going on here. And so David actually fibs to him. Tells him he's on an errand 
for Saul and kind of lies about it, gets some bread, gets Goliath's sword, and then, and then takes off. But there at that time is the man Doeg. Doeg the Edomite. We're told that, that he's actually detained. 1 Samuel 21.7, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Doeg was a bad egg. <laughs> this is a wicked guy. A real deviled egg, if you will. <laughs> He's the kind of guy who brings reproach to people. <laughs> so after seeing David and Nob, he scrambled back to Saul, planning to fry David. I'm sorry, no more yoking. Ultimately, commissioned by Saul, Doeg very seriously slaughters 85 priests there at Nob. He takes the sword to him. These priests are unarmed. These priests are wearing their linen ephods. And he goes after them and there is a bloodbath there at the tabernacle. And it's horrifying. Doeg's name literally means strong one or to cause fear or dread. The one who is strong. The strong man of the scripture. That's interesting. Who causes fear or dread and it completely fits. Verse 1 of Psalm 52. David writes, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. David contrasts the haughtiness of Doeg with the chesed of God. The boastfulness of Doeg with the grace of of God, the loving kindness of God. How is that a contrast? Well, because God alone has the right to boast. There is only one being over all creation, within all creation, around us at all. One being who truly has the right to boast, and that's God. And yet, rather than sitting up there on on high boasting, what does He do? He offers grace. He offers loving kindness. God's attitude is to bring grace to His people that they might come home, that they might be with Him. But Doeg is one who's haughty and braggadocio. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift. Listen, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And we might end up on either side of that. Some people are on the boastful side of it, thinking they're righteous and cool and and all together with God. And they're wrong. And then there are others on the other side of it who are saying, I'm not good enough. I'm too much of a sinner. And you're wrong. Because it's a gift. Grace is a gift. Something that you can't boast about. And something that you can't do anything to earn or achieve. As you may have heard, you can't be bad enough to deny God's grace. And you can't be good enough to earn it. Doeg is the mighty man boasting in his evil. This is, by the way, the difference between someone who's truly walking with the mind of Christ, a godly person, and a worldly person. The godly person disdains sin. And the worldly person disdains righteousness. In Psalm 51, which again we'll look at Sunday, we see David who is just broken. He's hanging his head in shame as he recognizes his sin. That's what the godly person does. When we see sin in our lives, it's just it disgusts us. It makes us feel ashamed. We don't like it. We don't want to see it. But the worldly person, in this case Doeg, Psalm 52, is a proud man. I killed 85 priests today. Yeah. Took them out. My sword. All by myself. Yeah, I told on David because I'm Saul's man. Saul had an errand for me. 
So as Doeg is boasting in his sin, David is broken in his sin, and, and that's the difference. It's the way of the world today to boast in sin. You know, to brag about sexual promiscuity, or to, or to laugh off too many drinks at karaoke night, or to highlight immorality as if it were funny or impressive or just the way things are. Oh, we've got to accept it. It's just an immoral world. You know, it may be the way things are, but it doesn't mean that it's right with God. Second John chapter 2, verse 15. Actually, I believe it's 1 John. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, this is not from the Father. This is from the world. And it is from the world that Antichrist emerges. I've told you before, Antichrist is not a guy with devil horns and, and a tail sticking out, you know. He's not going to have a t-shirt red with black letterings that just says Antichrist. He's just a guy. The Bible tells us Antichrist will be a man. It's very explicit about that. And Antichrist, coming out of the world, emerging from there, as the biblical description begins to unfold here, listen again, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Antichrist, I'll give you six things to note about him, Antichrist will be morally disdaining. This guy will come along and he will have all appearance of peace. And everybody's going to love him and he will be very impressive at first, but he will be morally disdaining. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. And I'm going to be a, give you a bunch of verses about this. He will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Which is interesting phraseology because typically when you talk about the God of your fathers, you're talking about a Jewish faith. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that, some actually think Antichrist may have some Jewish blood in him. Which would be why the Jews would accept him as well as, as the Muslims. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to consider there. He'll show no regard for the gods or God of his fathers. Or for the desire of women. Which is interesting. Perhaps because he's so busy conquering the world, or perhaps because Antichrist is in fact homosexual. He will have no regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above all. Antichrist will be morally disdaining. Pride is morally disdaining. Boastfulness is morally disdaining because the haughty man exalts himself above the law. Even above God who is holy in and of himself. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says Antichrist says he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And remember Sunday, we talked about the fact that we are created to worship. We are not, however, created to be worshipped. That messes us up. That, that can be problematic. When we are being worshipped because we start to think more highly of ourselves. We actually start to believe that we're, you know, different than the rest. That we're above the law. And watch, watch what happens with stars who get really big really fast. And they begin to do things thinking really they're not going to get busted for them because they think they're above the law. It is not healthy for us to be worshipped. Going on, verse 2 says, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. And then David writes in there, Selah. Remember the pause either a musical interlude or a pause, to consider what has just been said. Think about this. Doeg's intentions 
His behavior was destructive, seeking to destroy David, murdering the 85 priests of Nob. And second thing to note, not only is Antichrist going to be morally disdaining, he will be mighty in destruction. Mighty in destruction. Daniel chapter 8, verse 24 says his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy people. And while people are writing articles about how it's not going to get worse and how maybe we've been wrong and maybe those Christians who are expecting this tribulation and this Antichrist, you know, maybe they're just off their rockers. And we can all just work together for a peaceful, happy world. They are going to be suddenly surprised. Because the Bible says a man of so-called peace is coming and he's not going to bring peace. He will destroy massively. He will be about destruction. It says he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Verse 4. Going on, David says, You'll love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. A third thing to note about Antichrist, Antichrist will magnify deceit. This guy's going to be a liar par excellence. Daniel 8.23 tells us he'll be insolent and skilled in intrigue. Daniel 8.25 says, Through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. Working for peace. Seeking to have a nuclear free world. And please don't misunderstand me. I would love a nuclear free world. In fact, we're going to have one. It's called the Millennial Kingdom. Where there is absolute righteousness and Jesus is on the throne in Jerusalem and it's not going to be about nuclear proliferation because all the power will be right there. That's coming. And I believe in that. And I'm looking forward to it. But Antichrist, mighty in destruction, morally disdaining, will magnify deceit. And I see a world that is just primed for it. A world that is ready to be deceived. A few weeks back, the question was raised. Why can't Israel see all these things? Why can't they just look at their own scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and see all these things that we're talking about? And I vaguely referenced a verse. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 3.14 Their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Paul says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Why? Because when you turn to the Lord, you turn to truth. And Jesus said, the truth, I am the truth, will set you free. Suddenly, in Christ, you begin to see things you didn't see before. You begin to understand things in a way you didn't understand before. And the Bible says clearly outside of Christ, you're not going to understand. You're going to remain veiled as the Jewish people are. The same is true for all people who stand outside of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.3 Paul says, If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I'd say, Paul, what hope is there then? And Paul would say, Tell them. Tell them what you see. Share what you know to be the truth. Don't hold it back. There are people right now walking around blind. Tell them they're about to step off a cliff. 
I mean, what would you do if you saw a blind person standing by the side of the road waiting to cross, unsure if there were cars coming, and you see a Mack truck headed down the road, and they're starting to step out? Would you say, oh, well, you know, I just want to be tolerant of his belief system. Boom! No, you step out, you, you stop them. Hey, there's a truck coming. Hey, I see something here that you're not seeing, my friend. Verse 5 says, but God will break you down. Note this word, forever. Interesting, if David's just talking about Doeg, you know, forever, he will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Now, we don't know ultimately what happened to Doeg. He kind of just drifts out of the biblical narrative, the story. He's gone. He probably ended up, I don't know, fried or beaten or cracked. But we do know what happened to Antichrist, don't we? Number four, note this, Antichrist will go down in a marveled defeat. A marveled defeat. I I mean, people will marvel when they see. They'll wonder at... You know, the question is going to be raised. This was the guy? This was Antichrist? The 666 that we all freaked out about for so many... That's him? He will go down in a marveled defeat. We're told in Daniel 8.25, He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency, which means it's a God thing. Verse 5 again says, God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent, uproot you from the land of the living. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said that lawless one, speaking of Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And that's all we've been talking about here. He's morally disdaining, mighty in destruction, uh, magnifying deceit, going down in a marveled defeat. And Revelation 19 verse 20 describes it saying the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone Antichrist will go down to a marveled defeat verse 6 the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him saying behold the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and was strong in his evil desire. It's interesting. The righteous are going to look at Antichrist again, and they're going to marvel at what's going on. And what's incredible about the story of Antichrist as revealed in Scripture is this guy will ultimately be betrayed by the very one in whom he takes his refuge, and that is Satan. Satan himself, when he's done with Antichrist will be through with him. He'll leave Antichrist to himself. And there's an interesting passage, Daniel chapter 11, verse 45, tells us, He will pitch the tents of His royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet He will come to His end and no one will help Him. Back years ago when I taught the book of Daniel, I read through this and and it just struck me. I mean, as evil and wicked and awful and destructive and murderous and horrible as Antichrist will be, that one line just kind of sounds sad. He will magnify himself, proclaiming himself to be God even, 
But when it comes right down to it at the very end, He will be all alone. There will be no one to rescue Him. You might ask, well, where is Satan in all this? Well, he abandons Antichrist. Although he's got his own problems as he's being bound by an angel and tossed into the abyss. (laughs) But this is the pattern of the evil one. And this is something we need to be aware of in the way Satan works in our world and against us. You see, Satan, he lures us into sin and then he leaves us to suffer the consequences. He doesn't stand with you. He doesn't say, come on, let's do this. Hey, if we get caught, I'm with you, man. No. If we get caught, you're on your own. And so he draws people into sinful lifestyle and behavior and he's never there for you when it's all said and done. But the good news is God doesn't abandon His children. Jesus never leaves us alone. The only one who remains there for you, even in your failure, even in the moment of your sin, the only one who remains there for you to pick you up and dust you off and love you more is Jesus Christ. He's always there for you. Can you imagine the silence as the dust settled and from oldest to youngest they shuffled out of the temple court? And the Bible says Jesus straightened up and looked at the woman who they had thrown down in front of Him, caught in the act of adultery. He straightens up and He says, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go. Oh, and from now on, sin no more. And that's it. Not, Bow thou before me and I will grant thee the grace which I so obviously proffer to those who are such sinners like yourself. No, He just says, Hey, (laughs) just just don't sin anymore because I'm not going to condemn you. That's Jesus to the person caught in absolute sin. The only one left standing when I'm shaming myself in sin is Jesus Christ. Antichrist won't be. Verse 8, But as for me, and I like this, David writes, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of of your godly ones. The olive tree in the house of God. What does the olive tree produce for the house of God? Oil. You know, oil. The olive oil. That precious oil that was used there in the temple to keep the lampstand lit and burning. That precious oil. Zechariah had a great vision about this in Zechariah chapter 4 where he saw the Lord showed him these, these two great olive trees. And beside the olive trees were two golden pipes that came out of the trees and and they channeled golden oil coming out of the olive trees right into the lampstand there in the temple. Zachariah says, Who are these? And the Lord says, Oh, these are my servants, these two. Specifically two men in Zachariah's day, Zerubbabel and Joshua, but also possibly indicating the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. But these two men who are portrayed as two who have the Spirit of God pouring into them and then pouring on into the temple. And it's a great picture. But know this, 
He said, Zechariah, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's my spirit. And the spirit-filled person is like the olive tree in God's house. The olive tree who, who actually has more than enough oil in and of yourself. If you're spirit-filled, the oil is overflowing. You're providing oil to others as God pours out His Spirit on you. And what does that person do? Well, like David says, trusting in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. In other words, you're trusting in grace. And you're dispensing grace as you trust in grace. And the person is giving thanks for salvation forever and ever. And watch this. Note this. It's interesting. He also says, I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. So he's also someone waiting on the Lord in the presence of the godly ones. This is a beautiful picture here. And I think it speaks not only of David's desire to be righteous, but also it points us to another group of righteous people, kind of like olive trees in the temple. Righteous martyrs who die at the hand of Antichrist. Listen to this, Revelation Chapter 6, verse 9. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Do you, do you think you could be slain for the testimony of Christ? Do you think you could be slain because you're out there speaking the Word of God? There will be a people who are. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would also be accomplished. Interesting. Who are these people? These people who are waiting now. They're waiting there by the throne. And they call out, How long? Just a little longer. You need to wait. And we're told who they are a little bit further on. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. Note this, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here these people are. Same ones talked about. Those who have been killed because of their testimony and because of the Word of God in Revelation 6. Here they are in Revelation 7 and John sees them again. And they're praising but they're waiting. And we're told in verse 13 of Revelation 7 that one of the elders answered, saying, um, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? John, who are these people? And where have they come from? And John says, I said to him, my Lord, you know. What are you asking me for? You know the answer to this. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. That passage is why we believe that there will be a massive throng of people saved in the tribulation. Saved but martyred. Because if you miss the calling up of the church, if you miss the rapture of the church that Paul talks about and that John talks about and that Jesus talks about, if you miss that, God is still pouring out His grace, still wants to save, although it will be very difficult 
We're told in Revelation 7 there will be a massive soul harvest in the tribulation. People come out of the tribulation martyred for their faith. And it's not Israel. It's not the 144,000 sealed because it's from every nation and tribes and people and tongue. And these are like the righteous ones, all of trees in the house of God. Trusting grace, giving thanks, and waiting until the indignation has run its course. Now Psalm 53 This is going to foreshadow the appearance of Antichrist on the world stage. In other words, this kind of portrays what's happening that that leads up to the coming of Antichrist. Watch these things. Psalm 53, the uh, heading here, for the choir director, according to Mahalat, a mascal of David. Mahalat means one of two things. Now in your margins there, let's see what my Bible says. It just says sickness. Literally, Mahalat in the Hebrew means whirling around in circles... Or, writhing in pain. I believe I've shared in here one time when I went to a fair several years ago, back back in what, 84, 85? long time ago, and I rode on a ride called the Hammer. And I got off that ride and I was whirling around in circles and writhing in pain. I was mahalat, okay? And that's what this is talking about. It's this sense of being sick and dizzy and, and nauseous which will be the state of the world when Antichrist rises sick and sorrowful and nauseous. Watch this, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Does that sound familiar? This psalm, that passage, we read it before. Another psalm, actually. Psalm 14. Same psalm. If you read Psalm 14 and then you read, here's Psalm 53, it's like the same one. It's like, well, did someone accidentally Xerox it and stick it in here and not realize that they'd already put it in the book? What's going on with this? If you read Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 back to back, you might think they were the same, but there's a very subtle difference that you would need to catch. In both Psalms, 14 and 53, David refers to God seven times. Seven times in each Psalm. However, in Psalm 14, he uses the name Elohim three times and Yahweh four times. Here in Psalm 53, and I think it's purposeful that it's set here, he uses the name Elohim all seven times. Why? Why shifting back and forth in Psalm 14? And why is it all Elohim, Elohim, Elohim here in Psalm 53? Let me remind you something about the names of God. We talked about this recently. In the creation accounts, Genesis chapter 1 is all Elohim. There are scholars who call it the Elohimic creation because Genesis chapter 1, the focus is on the power of Creator God, Elohim, who creates the world and it goes through the six days of creation and everything created. Genesis chapter 2 is a restatement of creation, but now the name is Yahweh. The Yahvistic creation. And the focus is personal, not powerful. Powerful creation of the world and the universe, and then Genesis chapter 2, the personal creation of man and the intimacy that, that God has with man, the personal nature of that. Well, here in Psalm 53, the emphasis is on our powerful Creator. The powerful Creator God. And David, by contrast, defines the essence of wickedness and corruption this way. In the denial of Elohim the Creator. 
that the essence of wickedness is denying a creator God. And we've talked about how we're seeing a rise of atheism in the world today. We need to understand about atheism that it's more than just a philosophical difference. You don't believe in God, I believe in God, everything's cool. It's not cool. To deny a creator God is the focal point of atheism. It's the elevation of evolution and the denial of the divine. And that's at the very heart of atheism. And gang, you might note this, number five, the spirit of Antichrist is in major denial. Antichrist is the denier, and his very spirit is in major denial of the Creator God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 tells us, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you had heard, have heard that is coming, and now, interesting, John says, and now is already in the world. John said that 2,000 years ago. So you wacky people who believe there's an Antichrist guy coming, well, it's just kind of a vague essence there that's been around forever. Not so. Not so. I'll explain that in a moment. But all this to say atheism and evolution, gang, they are benchmarks of the last days. They are proof positive biblically that something is headed very wrong. The denial of creation and a creator God. It's preparation for the coming of of an antichrist leader. And I said, by the way, in number five there, that it's the spirit of antichrist that's in major denial, not just antichrist, and there's a reason for that. The Antichrist spirit has been active in every generation for at least 2,000 years. What do you mean? John says in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it's the last hour. Now that's, that's fascinating that John is saying this. He says in 2 John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. We see the spirit of Antichrist active in the person of Judas. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about this. He refers to Antichrist as the son of perdition. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17, 12. He says, Father, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them, talking about the apostles, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's Judas. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 2, calls Antichrist the son of perdition. Why? Because the spirit of Antichrist was on Judas as he betrayed Jesus. The spirit of Antichrist, as John says, has already been in the world. You heard he was coming, he's already here, he's already active, he's already doing things. Another candidate, interestingly, pops up for someone who might have been possessed by the spirit of Antichrist. A little bit later in that generation, the generation of John, a man by the name of Nero. You remember Nero? was a massive persecutor of Christians. He would dip Christians in hot oil or hot wax, let the wax harden, put them up on posts in his garden and light them on fire. 
And then he would ride in his chariot naked all through his gardens, crying out, You're the light of the world! You're the light of the world! He was nuts. He was a crazy man. And what's interesting about Nero is, well, you may know this, in the Greek and the Hebrew alphabets, the letters are also numbers. So the numbering system for the Jewish people and the Greek people is also the lettering system. Same thing, they use the letters for numbers. And when you add up Caesar Nero's name in the Hebrew, each letter standing for a number, it comes out to 666. So, so Nero was Antichrist? Spirit of Antichrist. I believe was at work in Nero. I believe was at work in Judas. I believe was at work in Hitler. I believe you could probably find people in every generation since the cross where you have seen the spirit of Antichrist at work. Revelation 13.18 Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. It's a guy who will be possessed by the spirit of Antichrist that John references. And the same satanic spirit that drove Judas' betrayal and I believe drove Nero's insanity and possibly such people as, as Hitler and others, that same spirit will possess possess the man that we refer to as Antichrist, the one, that end times world leader. Why so many? Now think about this. It makes absolute sense in a spiritual case. Why so many Antichrists or people possessed by the Antichrist spirit? Matthew 24, 36. Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So if no one knows but the Father, and Satan is going to attempt his rebellion... And Satan doesn't know, as the Bible says, he's going to rebel. He doesn't know when the end times, when this is all coming about. He would have to have an Antichrist on the scene in every generation since the cross, just in case. And so the Antichrist spirit, entering, possessing those who would live lives that are evil, in major denial of a Creator God. Now for all that, I think the generation of Antichrist himself in the tribulation will be by far the most godless that the world has ever seen. Read on, verse 3. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they are bread and have not called upon God? Note that those who would eat up the people of Israel as though they are bread. When I, when I see people going after Israel, trying to take down Israel, when I hear anti-Semitism, I think, have you no knowledge? Do you not know what has happened throughout history? Have you not read what the Lord says about His people? Are you completely deaf to it? It says they were in great fear or dread where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. This is just amazing. David is amazed at the ignorance of those who have persecute God's people, just as Antichrist will persecute God's people. And in verse 5, listen, he foresees the dread that will fall on the wicked with such certainty he writes like it already happened. Listen to verse 5 again. There they were in great dread where no dread had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you and you put them to shame because God had
had rejected them. He says it as if it already happened. Well, it hasn't happened yet. But David wrote it that way. It's it's called in, in biblical study, it's called a proleptic phrase. Proleptic meaning it is so certain to happen in the future that it's written about as though it's already happened. And David is writing proleptically here of a future event where there is sudden dread on a people where there wasn't any dread and God scattering the bones of those who encamp against Israel. Because it will happen. He says in verse 6, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores His captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And this is exactly what will happen at the end of the tribulation as Jesus returns. The Deliverer will, as Paul quotes in Romans chapter 11, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. And the people of Israel, alive, surviving at that time, will be saved. Now Psalm 54, continuing on. The heading says for the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? Now historically, we've looked at this story before. David writes concerning the people who are the Ziphites. They're also the people of of Keilah. Keilah. These people of this city who betrayed him to Saul two times. And in betraying him to Saul, it was even after David delivered them from the Philistines, the stories in 1 Samuel 23. You remember the story? The people of Keilah, the Ziphites, were in trouble. The Philistines attacking. And David says, Lord, should I go and save them from the Philistines? And the Lord says, go. So David does. He attacks the Philistines, takes them out, saves the people. And the people immediately turn on David and tell Saul, David's here. Come get him. Amazing. They betray him. And so David runs and hides. And a second time in 1 Samuel 23, they find out where David is and they go to Saul again and say, Hey, here he is. Come get him. A double betrayal here. And we talked about this at length in a previous study of Psalm 31, which also, we believe, parallels that betrayal of David and points to the betrayal of Jesus at the cross. But Psalm 54, in this context, wedged among these psalms, appears to be more a cry of the betrayed during the dark days of Antichrist. Note this, number six. Antichrist will be a master of duplicity. A master of duplicity. Verse 1, Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by Your name, and vindicate me by Your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. Pause. Betrayal. David is dealing with talking about betrayal and it will be another benchmark a hallmark of the days of Antichrist in the tribulation absolute betrayal Jesus said in Luke 21.16 you'll be betrayed even by parents and by brothers and relatives and friends and they'll put some of you to death and you'll be hated by all because of my name yet Jesus says not a hair of your head will perish well who's he talking about? He's not talking about the persecuted church across the ages there. Often we apply that passage to it. Hey, people were betrayed by brothers and friends and relatives and were put to death. Those who believed in Christ, martyrs for the cause in the last 2,000 years. He's not talking about them because they were killed. Yet not a a hair of your head will perish, Jesus said. He's talking specifically about the godly remnant who will be protected in the tribulation. Betrayed, 
set against, but saved and protected. Verse 4 goes on and says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. I love that word sustainer in the Hebrew. It's samak, and it means to uphold or to bolster. The Lord is the one who bolsters me, who, who holds me up, who encourages. Now, in the historical setting, something happened in 1 Samuel 23 here for David. And no doubt David is referencing this, this, this concept of being bolstered and sustained. He recalls that someone came to him there in the wilderness. In between the two betrayals, someone hot-footed it out of, of, the, of the place, of the palace of where Saul was, and comes to David to encourage him, and it is none other than Jonathan. 1 Samuel 23.16 tells us, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. And David remembers that. David writes of it, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer, the encourager, the samak of my soul. Yeah, I remember that when I was betrayed and Jonathan showed up. And what did Jonathan do? He encouraged him in God. In God. Gang, one of the most important aspects of our meeting together and of fellowshipping is the encouragement we get one from another. It's seeing each other and remembering, yes, there are other Christians in the world. (laughs) It's talking one to another. It's praying together. It's finding that encouragement. We come together not just to be fed the Word, not just to worship the Lord, though those are critical and vital to our spiritual life. We also come together to encourage each other. And I've shared with you before, that's the mentality to have walking in the door. Who can I encourage tonight? Lord, who needs an encouraging word? Who can I encourage in God? Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And church attendance, gang, is, is not about a roll call. It's about encouraging, upholding, and bolstering each other's faith, even as the day gets closer. That's why we keep showing up. It's not because if I show up, they'll notice, and I'll get an extra grace point you know, on my ledger there. No, you're here to encourage and to bolster the body of Christ. Verse 5 going on, He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly I will sacrifice to you, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For it, it says He in probably your Bibles, but literally it's it. For it has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. What do you mean, it has delivered me? His name. Listen to it in context. I'll give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it's good. It has delivered me from all my trouble. The name of God. Gang, listen, deliverance comes in declaring Jesus. My deliverance. Having a hard day? Declare Jesus. Having a difficult struggle? Declare Jesus. Betrayed? Hurt? Sick? Overrun? Declare Jesus. I'll never forget, years ago I was working a temp job. And I went into the office there and sat down actually with the break room and there were newspapers spread out and, and I, I got a soda and, and opened up the paper and I started reading and there's war and murder and gang violence and rape and I go, well this is encouraging. And I turned the page and it was more of the same and, and I couldn't even find a newspaper with anything encouraging. I was already kind of down that day having a hard day 
And I just, I'm reading through this and all of a sudden, you know what came to me? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Not because I was ultra spiritual, it just kind of popped into my head. And there in the break room, a smile spread across my face and I went, yeah, that's it. At the name of, all I needed was to have the name of Jesus come to mind. And the day got better. Declare Jesus. Because there is deliverance in the name. It delivers me from all trouble. The name of God, Jesus Christ. By the way, speaking of deliverance, there will be a great deliverance that's going to happen mid-tribulation in the dark days of Antichrist. An amazing deliverance is going to take place. The betrayed people of God are going to flee Jerusalem and they're going to end up... Well, let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Speaking of Israel... You don't have time to explain why. If you want to know why this speaks of Israel, go listen to the Revelation study, chapter 12. But Revelation 12, 6 says, The woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. Jesus said the sign to flee, to the Jewish people, the sign to flee, to get out of there would be obvious. Matthew 24, 15. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that would be the temple, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Oh, there are those who say, well, that happened in AD 70. No, it did not. No, it did not. There was not an abomination of desolation in AD 70. There was not the setting up of an idol in the temple. The temple burned to the ground in AD 70. Yes, the people fled. But that is not what Jesus was referring. He said he reaches all the way back to Daniel and says the abomination of desolation. When this thing happens, then people in Judea know you've got to get out. He spoke the sign back then so that when it happens, the people will know And they will flee to the mountains. What mountains? Well, I would guess they will flee to the mountains of Moab. Next psalm. Watch this. Psalm 55. Psalm 55. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David. And we don't know when he wrote it or why he wrote it. We can make some some surmise, which I'll, I'll, I'll tell you just a second here. But Psalm 55 portrays for us, prophetically speaking, the darkest moment of evil in the tribulation. This mid-tribulation point when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple. You'll see why. But some speculate the historical background of this psalm, along with Psalm 41, was the betrayal of David by his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, because it is a psalm of betrayal. However, we, we can't know for sure. But what seems obvious in this context is what will happen prophetically. Watch, Psalm 55, verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my uh, supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and terror, the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness. And he writes, Selah. 
David's saying, man, I'm, I'm betrayed and I'm sick about it. I just, I wish I could just run. I just want to flee. I want to hide in the wilderness. And he writes, Selah. And what's interesting to me is there's another Selah mentioned in Scripture. Not a pause, but a place. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 1. I'll quickly read this to you. Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Selah. The Hebrew word Selah is equivalent to the Greek word for rock, Petra. Petra. Verse 2 going on, Then like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. Give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. For the extortioner has come to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. A throne will even be be established in loving kindness. And a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. That's speaking of the coming of Christ. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. Moab is the area that we call Jordan today. And there in the mountains of Moab in Jordan is the ancient stronghold of Petra which is the rose-red city that is carved out of the rock there, and it's a place that on our next Israel trip, if enough of us will sign up for the extension, we'll go to Petra. You went. We're going to go. And we're going to see Petra, Lord willing, the next time we go to Israel. But Petra there, it's, it's an interesting thought. Could Petra be the place? There are many people who think it is, and there are those who think, ah, that's just some of that Left Behind series nonsense. Well, it's interesting. Petra meaning rock, Selah. And it's a place to which people flee from the destroyer, Isaiah 16 tells us. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, Revelation is very clear. As Antichrist establishes his throne, and, and he actually claims deity, claims to be God, Israel will flee to a lodge in the wilderness, perhaps Petra, where they will remain nourished for three and a half years until Jesus returns. In another place, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 26, verse 20, where the Lord says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. And here the psalmist says, Oh, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Verse 8, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, or literally frustrate their plans. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. The city, the walls, the street, what city? What walls? What streets? It's talking about Jerusalem. And that the wickedness, the evil, is in the midst of Jerusalem. That is, you all know, the epicenter, the focal point of Antichrist's devious, destructive design. Daniel 11.41 says he will enter the beautiful land and many will fall. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 says he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Verse 12, going on. It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear. 
Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. This is why people think David's talking about Ahithophel. Because he says, I've been betrayed by someone I trusted. Someone that, that was faithful. Someone, well he says, we who had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Well, how could that be Antichrist? Because Antichrist will be a master of duplicity. He will be a liar and a cheat and a deceiver. And the entire world will have been taken in by his skillful words and his politically correct behavior. Israel, the Arab world, and everyone else is going to be duped into thinking this guy is on our side. Oh yeah, we walk with him in sweet fellowship. Even there to the temple that, that he, he allowed us to build again. Oh, this guy's great. Okay, what is the test? Selah, think about this. What is the test of true fellowship today? What's your test of fellowship? What, what is, where do you draw the line? Say, I will fellowship with you. I will not fellowship with you. What is the test of fellowship? For an increasing number of people in the church, the test of fellowship is tolerance. Hey, just use the J word. Say Jesus and we're cool. It's all, I mean, it doesn't matter if, if we don't share anything else. you know. Or, or better yet, just believe in God. Your God, your God, your, you know, same God, tolerance. It's saying, you believe your thing, and I'll believe mine, and together we'll have peace. It's those who would internationalize Jerusalem and say, let's just make it a religious center for the whole world. Whatever you want to believe is cool. It's obviously a focal point of all these major world religions. You know, even the Christians in Jerusalem can't get along. <laughs> of the various sects and faiths. It's a world leader who would build a temple for the Jews while maintaining the mosques of the Muslims and the churches of the Christians. Hey, we'll just have it all. And it'll work and everybody will be happy. And I submit to you that the test of fellowship is not tolerance. The test of fellowship is truth. Truth. What is truth? And we fellowship around that. Did you hear? You know about the Muslim group and the whole issue going on in lower Manhattan and trying to build... It's not a mosque, it's a Muslim center for learning and and cooperation and all that. And Muslim center, they're right near Ground Zero and people are freaking out on both sides of of the issue. There's a name that the group who is seeking to build this Muslim center has. That's it. The Cordoba Initiative. Oh, cool, the Cordoba Initiative. And if you go to their website, which I did today, Cordoba Initiative, uh, or CordobaInitiative.com, something like that, they talk about how we're promoting tolerance and how, like in Cordoba, Spain, back in the day, back in the 8th century in Cordoba, Spain, where the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews all got along so well, well, that's the picture, that's what we're seeking for. Do you know the real history there of, of Cordoba, Spain? And what actually happened in the 8th century? The Christian church of St. Vincent's was torn down by the conquering Muslims and they built the great mosque on the site of that torn down Christian church. This is the pattern. Just look at it across history. The grand mosque of Damascus was built over the site of the torn down St. John's Cathedral. Tear down the Christian church and build our mosque right there. 
The Dome of the Rock mosque is built on the exact site of what? The Jewish temple. Tear it down. Build a Muslim mosque. It is a sign, a symbol. Gang, I'm sorry, this is history. It is a symbol of conquest. Tear down the two towers. And what do you do? Build as close as you can. Now, if I'm stirring up anti-Muslim sentiment, I'm not really worried about y'all going out and, you know, blowing up a mosque or something. Don't! (laughs) But the pattern is here. And the pattern of tolerance and the pattern of deceit and the lies. And Oh, yeah, we just want to be like in Cordoba. Okay, destroying that which is Christian to put up that which is Muslim. That's what happened in Cordoba. Verse 15. Maybe I shouldn't follow that statement with this verse, but this is where we are. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive into Sheol. And I don't want this. You know this. I've shared this. I don't want this for Muslim people. What do we want for Muslim people? Salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we want. And if anyone says, you Christians are just like Muslims. No, we're not. I don't want to blow anybody up. I want to see someone go up when Jesus calls us home. I just want salvation. I want you to have eternity just like the Lord has graced me with. That's what we want here. I'm not sure that's what David wants when he says, let death come upon them. For evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. Man, David is just raw. He's just an honest guy. And his prayers show that to be the case. He just lays it out. And by the way, that is somewhat prophetic because, again, as Revelation 19.20 tells us, that the, the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Now listen. For those who endure, there is a great exhortation and comfort in these next few words. Verse 16. As for me, David says, I shall call upon the Lord. And the Lord will save me. Love this verse. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and He will hear my voice. Who would describe their prayers that way? (laughs) Lord, I got up early this morning to complain to You. And I'll be murmuring at noon. And this evening I'll be right back at it, Father, complaining and murmuring. Hallelujah. (laughs) But David writes this way. And I think it's wonderful. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. You know, here's my problem, my, one of my few problems, really, with the Left Behind fictional series, which I, I really enjoyed the series, but here's the problem that I have with it. Too much battling and not enough bowing. To sell a book... The series is all about fighting against Antichrist and fighting against the New World Order and going, you know, stealthily going into battle instead of bowing. And David gives us an example. Man, you bow. You don't battle back, you bow down. Evening, morning, and at noon I'll pray. And by the way, the words murmur and complain there probably could be translated better, I'm guessing. I think there's a little assumption probably made by the translators here. The Hebrew word sayak, which is translated there, uh, complain, sayak, also means commune. Yeah. I will commune with you. Morning and evening and at noon. Uh, the word translated murmur there is hama, and it means cry aloud. I will commune. I will cry aloud to the Lord. Morning, evening, 
and at noon. Verse 19. God will hear and answer them. Even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah. I love this. David stops mid-sentence and says, Oh, wait a minute, pause. Think about that. I'll finish the thought, but think about that. Everyone who sits, or even the one who sits enthroned from of old, why does he do this here? Because in the midst of treachery, David says, pause and remember, even when you're betrayed, that God is on the throne. He's on the throne. Not the betrayer. Not the boss who would fire you. Not the family member out to get you. Not the friend who you thought you could trust who's turned on you. No, they're not on the throne. Antichrist is not even on the throne, though he thinks he is. No, the one who sits enthroned from of old. God will hear and will answer them. The one who sits enthroned from of old. With whom there is no change and who do not fear God. Okay, by the way, another thing to note, verse 19, the word answer is also the word afflict. God will hear, that is, He's going to hear the prayers of of righteous people like David, and He's going to afflict who? Those with whom there is no change and who do not fear God. Why don't the people fear God? Because there is no change in them. And where there is no change, there is no fear. Where there's no change, there's no fear. Revelation 9.21, the verse is not up there behind me, 16 verse 9 and 16 verse 11. Three times we're told in the latter part of the tribulation, they did not repent. Why? Oh, there was no fear. No fear, no change. No change, no fear. No change in the heart and people are too, forgive me, stupid to fear God. When the heart doesn't repent and recognize, man, I need Jesus. If I have any hope, I need His grace. When the heart doesn't change... Then we just sit back and go, I, you know, church is cool for you. I'm not worried. Now when I get up there, if, if it's all true, I'll talk to him. Really? No change. No fear. And these are a people in whom there is no change, and so they do not fear God. But God is on the throne. We'll look at this Sunday, but Psalm 51.17, David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And my friends, that's the heart God's looking for. The broken heart, the contrite heart, this heart that just says, i got nothing to give. But I'm here. I'm here, Lord. Now, one last description of Antichrist, and it is stunning in its blatancy here. Verse 20. He has put forth His hands against those who were at peace with Him. He has violated His covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but His heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Now, before we finish, what do we do with all this information about Antichrist? We've been spending most of tonight talking about Antichrist as seen prophetically through the Psalms. What do we do with this? And the spirit of Antichrist, the one who will be morally disdaining and mighty in destruction and magnifying deceit, the one who will be in major denial of Creator God and a master of duplicity who will eventually go down in marvelous defeat. All of our points tonight. Okay, that's great. It's interesting. It's fascinating. How are we to respond to all of this threat of this impending coming prince. 
Well, it's the same way we respond to any evil. Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5.6 Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Verse 22 again. Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You might say, hey, (laughs) I've been shaken. So is the issue just that I'm not righteous? Well, If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are righteous by His blood. Okay, but I've been shaken. Not like is being described here. Because the the word for shaken there, it's mote in the Hebrew. M-O-T-E. And it literally means, well, in this context, He will never allow the righteous to be moved. To be moved. He's going to hold on to you. He's going to establish your footing. He's going to give you strength. Oh, you may totter a little in the wind. You may feel shaken, rattled, like life is in the balance, but in Jesus Christ, you will not be moved. That's the masculine for tonight. You know, we're not looking for the coming of Antichrist. We're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure we're not going to see Antichrist. Or if we see him, it's going to be before he rises to power. Because long before that, or or, or shortly before that actually, we'll probably be drawn up, caught up, called out, enraptured. We look at Antichrist recognizing His coming so that we will see in contrast and know better Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who we're looking for. And Peter says again in 1 Peter 5, now in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Because in Jesus Christ you will not be moved. Amen? Let's bow. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, I pray that we've handled it correctly. I pray that it is accurate. Father, as we compare with Scripture and and look at all that You had to say about Antichrist, boy, the parallels are dramatic. If this is not the stuff of prophecy, Father, it is certainly the stuff of incredible parallels. And so we read to understand not only what David went through historically, but what is coming prophetically. And Father, not so we can sit back and enjoy the cataclysm. No, Father. So that we'll be motivated in this world. Motivate us, Lord. Energize our faith. Man, give us a passion, Lord, to talk about Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.